Good morning. My name is Aaron Sutton. I am the Trauma Outreach Coordinator for Wesley Medical Centers. Today I am here with two subject experts as we discuss hypotension in traumatic pediatric patients. Dr. Mollick, would you introduce yourself? Sure. Good morning. I am Dr. Kim Mollick. I am a pediatric surgeon here at Wesley Medical Center and the Pediatric Trauma Medical Director. And I'm Megan Landwehr. I am the Pediatric Trauma Program Manager here at Wesley. Thank you so much for being here today. Um, we're going to discuss pediatric trauma patients and when they start showing hypotension and what that means. Uh, Dr. Mollick, would you like to start? Sure. I think um, the hypotensive pediatric trauma patient can easily be under-recognized because children have so many amazing compensatory mechanisms. Um, first and foremost, most of the time, children are very heart rate dependent, and their blood pressures will maintain themselves until really the end of their compensatory mechanisms. So although kids can be in stage three uh, shock before we'll see any significant change in their blood pressures. One of the earliest signs of hypotension in children is actually not hypotension. It's actually tachycardia. And what we'll see in kids is a tachycardia that they may be uh, transient responders to fluid or uh, non-responders to fluid. And that should be our earliest sign that we have ongoing hemorrhage somewhere. By the time we actually see hypotension in children, there is up to a 40% mortality rate, and they're already in stage three, if not stage four shock. So it behooves us to really um, pay attention to some of those more subtle signs that, that the children will have. Now, that's easier said than done because a lot of children who even have minor injuries will have some tachycardia related to pain, related to fear, related to anxiety. So we do have to pull in some of our other uh, physical exam findings, such as um, our capillary refill, sometimes our temperature, um, our color, our pallor, um, our mental status to help us differentiate uh, um, whether we're in shock or whether we just in pain, um, but and it can be hard to do that in those first few minutes of, of uh, evaluation. Megan, are there any trends that you're commonly seeing with the pediatric assessment? A failure to take a blood pressure. Um, even in RER, we had to make sure and work with our, our staff that we're obtaining a blood pressure all the time, especially on the very young kids. Um, even though it's not the first sign that we're going to see of hypotension, we still um, we still need that blood pressure to be obtained. What's the the youngest age appropriate for a blood pressure? Is it like a common misconception might be um, I'm bothering the kid or I'm bringing up their anxiety? What's what's a good time to uh, always? What's a good age to say this is a standard? Well, I think it's almost on every kid. Um, it's the infants that, that are hard because they're wiggling and you kind of have to, you know, really work with that extremity while you're taking it. But 
um, if you can't get it or you're just not relying on your monitor, go for a manual blood pressure. But all ages, you can justify a blood pressure. So you talked about, Dr. Malik, um, fluid resuscitation uh, and sometimes a patient showing a transient improvement. What's a good patient for a fluid resuscitation, a dose, and what should they be looking for? That's a great question, Erin. And so what we'll see sometimes, um, and children tend to have more solid organ injuries than penetrating trauma um, that is a little bit different in the adult world. So we oftentimes don't have external signs of hemorrhage that we can go by. So most of our hemorrhagic shock is going to be internal. So um, what we'll see is that tachycardia with a normal blood pressure, and we'll treat with a 20 per kilo bolus, generally of crystalloid, saline, or LR, dealer's choice. And we'll see, you know, a 10 or 20 point drop in that blood, in that heart rate. Um, and that will last maybe 45 minutes or an hour. And then we'll see that heart rate slowly creep up again, slowly creep up again. And we would call that a transient responder. <clears throat> uh, and then we'll have to either bolus again, or maybe by that time we might have some laboratory values back and realize that our, our hemoglobin is low. And, and then we may shift our treatment algorithm based on that. Is there any, Megan, any fluid resuscitation you see that maybe EMS brings in um, that is the standard for what should you guys want to see in the ER as that patient arrives? A standard, um, it's really weight-based. So it's that 20 per kilo bolus. So um, I think most important thing that you can do up front is if you don't know the patient's weight, um, is to get that Braslow tape out and get a good uh, kilo measurement. And another thing, make sure that you are obtaining the the weight in kilograms, um, especially if you're taking in the info from a parent. As a parent myself, I can tell you what my children weigh in pounds. I, I don't always calculate it out to kilos. So make sure that you have a solid differentiation between kilos and um, pounds. And we just, just strictly go by kilograms here. And we talked about the importance of a blood pressure, but you also mentioned GCS is very important in pediatric patients. Um, how would you calculate that? I mean, I, we all know the GCS has a different evaluation mm -hmm. standard for kids. What GCS is alarming to you? Like, I know I'm always happy when kids are crying and upset in terms of them being my patient, not right. being my children. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, although it may hurt our ears, we love the crying child. Um, the kids or the kiddos that come in obtunded, um, just not willing to put up a fight. You know, they typically have that GCS of eight or less, those are the ones that should really worry you. And I think most people reasonably get worried about that as well. I agree. Um, you know, uh, children who are scared, sometimes, you know, they won't do the complex motor mm -hmm. uh, responses or they're just mad and so they're not going to cooperate mm -hmm. with you. So if you say, grab my finger or, you know, make a fist or those sorts of things, they may not do that. And so the the motor component, although is very important, uh, depending on the age of the child, you may not get a high motor score because they're not cooperative. Mm -hmm. um, so the pupillary response is so important to us. And then uh, exactly like Megan said, we want that uh, crying response to pain um, that shows that, that they're reacting appropriately to their environment.
Yeah, I always get scared. If I stick a child for an IV and they don't respond, I'm very nervous. Yeah, I agree. Do you guys have an ideal uh, catheter size? I mean, obviously in EMS, it's we go for the biggest we can get. Mm-hmm. Um, but is there anything that really helps you guys in case uh, fluid's not working and you guys are going to uh, start using a blood transfusion to, to, to that? Well, it's usually, again, just like Megan had said, everything in our world is weight and age base. So in the infants, we can do almost everything through a 24-gauge um, IV. UVM, we can do anything through a 24-gauge IV. As the child gets older and bigger, obviously, the bigger the requirements for the, for the catheter size. <clears throat> um, so it, it really is very much... Uh, age slash weight based, but we we can start almost everything through a peripheral IV and or an intraosseous catheter. And I think we see, although I think everybody's getting better going for an IO um, these days. I think we still see quite a few failed attempts at an IV, where if you if you've tried twice, go for the IO. At Absolutely, that point. yeah. It's just definitely the way to go and mm-hmm. you can give a, you know an intraosseous catheter is essentially a central line so you should be able to give any medicine get labs um anything through an io catheter without uh really any worry mm-hmm. that is good to know i know a lot of protocols are written two tries or 90 seconds um but i've never regretted doing an io in the field so you said a lot of uh, trauma in pediatrics is blunt organ injury. Do you expand on that a little bit? Absolutely. So <clears throat> although although our penetrating volume has increased significantly in the past year, traditionally, <clears throat> and I think really globally, the majority of pediatric trauma is blunt, meaning that it is not from gunshot wounds or stab wounds of that of that nature it's really from atv accidents motor vehicle accidents falls um uh you know in kansas we see horse accidents cow accidents things like that so or trampoline accidents and so a lot of the children will sustain injuries to their solid organs such as liver spleen kidneys um, that can result in hemorrhage. Uh, and so that's, you know, 99% of the time where we're going to go for when we, when we see that there's hemorrhage or shock, we assume that there's a solid organ injury um, that, is ble- that is bleeding. And is there anything you can see in your assessment, or do sometimes these injuries um, sneak by until labs show up? Well, um, Sometimes you can see the children are in distress. So um, a child who has poor color, their lips may be real pale. Um, They sometimes can't, they won't talk because they're tachycardic and tachypnic because they're in shock. So, you know, a child that you can converse with or if they're older, um, if they're appropriate age to have a conversation with, um, that tells you a lot. But if they're in distress, that also tells you a lot. They're not able to have a conversation with you or speak a full sentence. Um, and then uh, the 
you know, a lot of, obviously the solid organs are in the abdomen, so the abdominal exam can be key. Uh, a big abdomen that's distended, firm, tender, obviously extremely worrisome. Uh, at our facility, we use the FAST exam pretty uh, readily. Uh, almost every patient uh, gets a FAST exam to help us look for uh, free fluid in the abdomen where it should not be. And so that can be very helpful. Not all facilities have that capability. Certainly a lot of our critical access hospitals and, uh, you know, level four centers don't always have uh, FAST available, certainly not, you know, at night or weekends. So that's a luxury that not everybody has that we do. Um, but we use it pretty, pretty readily here. And it can be very helpful to help either rule in or rule out hemorrhage in a specific body cavity. So we, we will use that pretty, pretty readily to help us identify the source of potential hemorrhage. What should we be looking for to really make it an urgent transport versus a wait and see? Yeah, so I think you have to just go with the patient's vital signs, age appropriate, and that's a big thing is to make sure that you, you at least have access to them if you don't know the differentiation between all of the different heart rates. Um, blood pressure acceptability, but um, follow the vital signs and follow the child's exam. If they are worrisome to you at all or they give you that gut feeling that something's just wrong, um, we will happily take in that child and admit that we have an admission rate of almost um, anywhere from 80 to up to 90%. We, we keep and observe a lot of those children, and we feel comfortable doing so just because they can be tricky often. Do you guys find that you follow your gut when treating patients? Is that something that, um, have you ever looked at vital signs and said, these are good, but your gut said, um, be looking out for more labs or anything like that? I think quite often, um, and Dr. Mollick brought up the FAST exam earlier, sometimes those can have a false negative. Um, so we do keep those children in that we're um, just going to follow serial abdominal exams. Um, yeah, you know, uh, I, I definitely agree. And we had a case a couple of weeks ago, well, probably now a month ago, of a patient from way out in western Kansas who had kind of poor vital signs out there, and she was lifelined in. But when she got here, she looked great. But she was just a little tachycardic, and it just worried us a little bit. So we, we actually did end up operating on her, and indeed we found um, bleeding uh, from the small bowel mesentery. So it's not always straightforward, and mm -hmm. she truly was a responder. She responded to a unit of blood and did well and arrived looking much better than when she left western Kansas. And I really hemmed in hot on that decision to take her to the OR. But the moment we operated and found like a liter of blood in her abdomen, but her heart rate was like 100 and her blood pressure was 110 and she looked great. But if we had not operated when we did, I guarantee you an hour later, we would have been in significant distress. So like Megan said, children can be very tricky and and a lot of times you really do have to trust your gut. So experience and at a facility where that's what we do all day long. So everybody is used to kids and how they look and how they're supposed to act can be really helpful because we know when something's just not right. And 
and sometimes we just watch them until we are sure one way or the other where we need to go with things. All right. Is there anything in closing you guys would like to share? I think the only other issue maybe we didn't really bring up TXA in the pediatric population. And just a shout out to the use of TXA. It's Mm -hmm. really helpful. And I know a lot of um, facilities and or providers have some angst about using TXA, um, but it's incredibly safe in children. Um, Cardiac surgeons use it all the time. Orthopedic surgeons use it all the time. And we use it all the time. Mm -hmm. And so if you have a child who is in hemorrhagic shock, uh, and I, I know so many facilities are great about getting that blood started after that second bolus, um, think the next step is get that TXA running as well. <clears throat> and um, it can be hard because you might need a second IV, but if you at all can, the TXA is, is definitely warranted. Uh, you want to use it within the first three hours of the injury. That's key. If you start it after the third hour, there definitely is an increase in the thrombotic profile of the medication. So we, we can't do that. But if you at all can, within the first three hours of the injury, um, please start that TXA when you're packaging the patient up for transport to us because it, it really can be very helpful. It's really a big help. Even though we have it readily available in the, in the trauma bay, um, it's a big help when we've already gotten the bolus going. I know in the EMS field, our protocol was usually the heart rate was tachycardic within three hours, um, any signs of shock. And then as uh, someone who used to have to purchase, it was just a really cheap medication. Anything else? I think, again, just don't underestimate how good kids can look and yet Mm -hmm. be bleeding to death. Um, We have seen that so many times in the past couple of years, children um, essentially bleeding bleeding to death, and they still look amazing. So. Um, really keep an eye on those vital signs. Just like Megan said, please check blood pressures, even though they may be normal tensive up front. Um, when they start to become hypotensive, we're already so behind the eight ball and mortality can be up to 40% by the time they're hypotensive. Um, and then the first 20 per kilo bolus can be crystalloid of your choice. Um, obviously something isotonic, not hypotonic and then go to blood, don't feel bad about that at all, and then ship them as soon as you can. That does it for us today at Trauma Talk. I'd like to thank Megan and Dr. Mollick for being our guests today, and if you have any questions for the trauma team, please feel free to email me at aaron.shutton at wesleymc.com. Remember, new episodes are dropped every even Tuesday of the month, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.